For the Peterson Automotive Museum, this is Car Stories. Today, I am joined by father and son duo, John Hotchkiss Jr. and John Hotchkiss Sr. Thank you both uh, so much for coming in. AJ, thanks for having us. And uh, we've gotten your story, John Jr., and uh, you've had an incredible career, you know, growing up around auto racing and cars, uh, and now with your new Hotchkiss performance, well, not new, but your your performance line of suspension, Hotchkiss Performance, which is Hotchkiss.net, um, you know, you, you have cemented your name in the automotive world, and I'm uh, extremely excited to be talking with your father today, John Hotchkiss Sr., who you've done a little bit of racing. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. Thir- I, 35 years. I am uh, very excited to find out, um, you know, your whole history and, and what you've done on uh, the racetrack. But we'll start with, you know, going all the way back to what is your earliest automotive memory? I mean, of the racing? No, just in general. Oh, I didn't pay much attention to automobiles until one day... I came out to Riverside in a Chrysler station wagon because there were some friends of mine that were going out and doing their job. I think it was probably around hay bales in those days. Um, and we got, you know, I thought that was pretty good. They went out, came back in, and started talking, and I couldn't understand a word they were saying, like they were sucking on helium. Mm-hmm. And I had to think a little and say, what the heck goes on out there? And so I. I had to go find out, and um, which was probably the stupidest thing I ever did. But uh, nevertheless, I got a guy to take me up to Willow Springs, and he had a, car, um, a Chevrolet Corvair, which is a mid-engine Chevrolet. Yeah. They only made one. And uh, he said, get behind the wheel, and we'll go around the track. And as we went up the first hill, the wheel came off, and the car tipped over. And... I said, Jesus, this is kind of like flying. Um, on the other hand, there was w- gasoline dripping from the gas tank. Yeah. And I thought, <laughs> they better get out of here. <laughs> That's probably not the best first experience to have. <laughs> and uh, but, but, but the wheel had rolled all the way down to the pit lane, naturally. And they brought the wheel back up, righted the car, put the wheel back on, and said, let's go. You're just back at it. And we're back at it. <laughs> now, you guys have an interesting relationship because I've interviewed so many people, and a very standard answer is my dad got me into cars. You know, I was a kid in the garage. Yeah. My dad was working on cars. Um, but it's almost sort of the opposite. John, you seem to have gotten your dad into into racing and cars. Could be. I, uh, um, I don't quite – you have a better memory than I do how it all happened. Well, you know, it's really amazing. It's uh, as my father was in the financial world. For some reason, I always loved cars, and I, you know, whether it was a mini bike or Taco Twenty Two or go kart or anything you could drive, I would like. I did that, and uh, and then so it was kind of when my father uh, decided he wanted to try racing. I mean, I was I was all in. I was so excited, and the fact that he was going to borrow a friend's three fifty six and go out and drive and and. Uh, it was almost for a little kid. It was like dream come true. Yeah. Now, John, what um, what 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 got you? I mean, what made you want to get into racing? What what kind of sparked that light well, for you? Well, the same reason that those people I talked to after they've been practicing out at Riverside 
they're all like they've been sucking on helium. I mean, I think that is what happens. Yeah. You get on, on the track and the adrenaline gets so high, particularly, if, I mean, I started with a 1600cc pushed rod engine and a little 49 Porsche um, who can never, I always remember because it was named Fred. <laughs> and you don't go very fast, but you get some thrill out of it all. And then you move up through the different cars, and and you get going pretty fast. Um, so, uh, I don't know. What was your question? <laughs> no, I just, you know, what what made you decide you didn't just want to go to the races or watch the races? No. You actually wanted to get in the car and go. Yeah, I never wanted to see a race. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not a very good spectator, and I really am no particular in, interested in how the engine works. But I'm not sure it works. Uh-oh. Did we just lose our uh, audio? Hold on. Funny, this is what... There we go. Oh, we got it. Okay. Keep going. Uh, <laughs> um, my interest is purely in the driving. And um, um, I just... There's something about it that if you're a money manager, which I've been forever, um, you've got to remember that Everything you do, somebody's doing the opposite. One of you is wrong, and you got to be and hope you're sixty percent right. Um, and somehow you got to find something to take away all of the cobwebs from your head, because uh, it's a little frustrating world out there. Why well, he makes stuff so that he's selling stuff that he's made? I just sell advice, and you know it's a whole different egg. And um, and so a punching bag would have been the trick. And uh, but a Porsche <laughs> was there instead of the punching bag. Well, yeah. Well, I just had. I mean, gosh, um, punching bag sounded so boring somehow. And um, I got into the races, but there were you know am amateur. I mean, they were very down, low down on the list. And we had, it was an E prod, I think, when we I first started in regional races and you get a national license and then you move up to a 912 and then you know a 911 and 914.6 and you just keep moving up and I suppose you could stop any time um, but that adrenaline hit just keeps you going. But you guys seem to move up pretty quick because you you started with a 1600 cc. Yeah. And then uh, how quickly did you move on to, you know, the bigger, more professional race cars? And what were those cars? Well, um, I, can't, I can't say that, that a, you know, an early 911 is, a, you know, it's not much more. <laughs> it's not, we took, believe it or not, we went to Sebring. Bob Kirby and, me, and I went to Sebring with a Porsche we, we bought for $10,000, a 911. And um, it was in the days when Sebring was a World Cup. So there, all the foreign drivers were there, and Rodriguez was driving a Ferrari, and there were 917s, and there were all these gorgeous Italian women, um, naturally. And um, I just remember my first night practice at Sebring was um, I was scared to death because there were some very fast cars, and they told me, look, don't worry about a thing. You're made of steel. They're made of fiberglass. They're not going to want to hit you. No. <laughs> and that helped a lot. Uh, and we qualified last. 
wow. on the grid and finished the race and sold the car for ten grand. <laughs> you know, you being a financial advisor, I, I would assume you know completing a whole race and getting your money back yeah. is, is probably a pretty good weekend. It was unbelievable and that uh, you know could have been uh, something quite different but yeah. that's what it uh, we had one in crew and that was it and john did you were you watching your dad at this time or were you also racing no no this was uh i believe that was 1970 yeah. and uh but i have i'm gonna go back a little bit aj and tell you what it was like being a absolute motorhead and then having father come home and say okay uh, I'm going to race. I remember trying on his helmet and, and looking in the mirror and thinking, oh, this is really cool. Yeah. And then uh, his friend Bob Kirby, who had a great partnership with for so long, uh, had a 356 black car, and it was uh, named Fred. He always named his cars. And and he had, I remember coming, going to his house and, and picking up the car, and he had an old Dodge van, and then the car had a tow bar. There was no trailer. Okay. And so there, there, there were four race tires uh, on Porsche wheels, and then there were steel wheels with uh, street tires. So the car was on street tires. You'd, we, I remember pushing the car out of his garage and then hooking the tow bar up to the back of the Dodge van, and we were off to Willow Springs for the weekend. Wow. And, and uh, it was absolutely incredible. And then uh, you know, I had this uh, stop. He, uh, they were in, uh, <clears throat> actually, had a really cool timing system. It was a board with three mechanical stopwatches on it, and you push the the, uh, the little lever, and one stopwatch would go, and the other would stop, and that was the way you could get uh, every lap and so on. But then he, he raced it. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure even people know about this, but uh, Orange County International Raceway drag strip mm-hmm. had a road course. Oh, wow. And uh, so I remember racing there in Riverside, uh, Willow Springs, and then uh, also at Sears Point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we and I remember towing that little car down to Hopeville and with no crew. And um, I do remember so well, Steve McQueen was there in a 908 getting ready for the movie Le Mans. So this was before the movie, so he yeah. was just practicing there. Uh-huh. And... Um, um, actually, I guess it might have been a nine twelve, and I, I, uh, whatever it was, um, Hopeville is not someplace uh, close by. I mean, it's kind of out in nowhere, and I g- had to get someone to do the stopwatch because I didn't bring anybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you know, there's a, 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 quite a few stories like that. Did you ever think this was going to be anything more than a hobby? Did you ever well, think? Well, yeah. I mean, it got to be when the cars got a lot bigger and faster, um, we were running professionally. That doesn't mean you make any money. No. <laughs> and, but at least for internal revenue, when I finally settled with them over a number of years, um, I was... I was a professional race car driver. I just didn't make enough money to pay for the <laughs> for the expense. So that there is some laws involved that you can only do that so long, and um, and it's not going to work. You got to stop. Um, otherwise, they're going to call at you know the, all those expenses. I can't write them off. So it's um, um, professional is is clearly. Um, goes along with some of that racing, but um, yeah, it didn't make any difference to me whether it was amateur or professional. It was just getting that adrenaline hit 
that was started with that helium back in hundreds before that, and you just move up with your ability to to um, or, or where you just get so scared to death the hell of it. Um, but there's you know it's, it, those speeds are you know they do things to you. Yeah. And um, um, you got to you know I've done Daytona what nineteen times, and pretty soon it's like it's just all muscle memory. I mean, you're not, you know the track so well now, and you just want to make sure you do the same thing each each time. And to a spectator, that's pretty boring. <laughs> to a guy in the car, you can do the perfect line each time. It's just mind-boggling what, what it does to you. It's a fantastic sensation. Um, and I was glad we got up to a 962 um, I remember Bob Kirby just stayed with the amateur thing. He didn't want to do that. Um, and um, you guys, as as you were sort of progressing, and you're going from Willow Springs yeah. and um, you know the Orange County local yeah. tracks, and you said you, you've been to Sebring 19 times. No, no, that was Daytona. Oh, Daytona. Um, you guys, you went to Lamar. Yeah. And, and you've raced there. Yeah. How did that idea first come about? Well, it, it was about five years in making, and uh, um, our friend Dennis Othi and, and a few others, we just kept talking about it and talking about it and talking about it that we'd love to just do a little more. And by God, um, D- Dennis got involved with it. He really built the car. We put the car in a crate with the spare tires and some tools and put it on a boat. And it went to France. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, we picked it up at the dock and took it to Le Mans. And then we went through, uh, we, I just remember so well, we could, couldn't find the town square uh, where they were doing all of the scrutineering. Finally we did, and there are six stations um, of which they look at your car, and these are Frenchmen, and they have to find something wrong. Sure. Um, I mean, uh, there are five things wrong at each station, and they'll settle for one that you'll, you'll agree with. But um, it, it was it was quite a, um, a way of introduction to big time racing. Uh, they just simply, um, I remember finally we got to the last station, and. Um, the, we we had the mirrors on the front here where um, you can see everything. You can see the side, the back, the whole. I mean, it was a, you know that whole new thing they put on the windshield. And the Frenchman said, ooh, wonderful, yeah. But the rules say you have to have mirrors on the outside. So we went to the hardware store, bought a couple of mirrors, brought them back, taped them on. He said, hmm. <laughs> wonderful we knew they'd fall off on the first lap and uh, they did sure and um that was that but um and then we took the car to the track i mean it was it was mind-boggling um there's four hundred thousand people that go to loma um they can't start the race until four in the afternoon because nobody can get there yeah <laughs> and then everybody of course at noon stops and they have lunch. So that whether, wherever they are in their car, they pull up the little table and put the cloth on it and, and have lunch. Uh, food, uh, I mean, I think the, <laughs> the French, uh, 
they think more about food than anybody in the world, mm-hmm. um, or unless it's the Germans. And um, so um, it was a fabulous experience. And then you get in the car and um, you, you start doing some laps and whatnot. Um, and then they, they, they changed our pit because we were brand new. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we were Americans and our sponsor was Belgium wins, you know, the stuff you pour in your engine, but in their Belgian group. And the French don't like either the Americans or the Belgians. So they put us next to the Renault team. And these are the Renault Alpines, which, good Lord, I mean, they were beautiful cars. And they also had an awful lot of reporters and people that would come. And I just remember getting into our pit. You had to separate the reporters to get in. And um, um, it was quite a way to <laughs> see how all three cars broke, which was not unusual. So we finally there all disappeared. But it's, it, I mean, Le Mans or, or 24 Hours of Daytona or the Sylvia, these are all incredible races that are endurance races. So you don't have to have the fastest car. You just have to have the most constant times. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to be smooth. And you have to bring the car back. And if you don't bring it back, you don't finish. And whether you hit something or they hit you or whatever it might be, the trick is is to make sure you finish the race. And you guys have you've raced with some extremely memorable people over the years. I mean, you know, in this time you were doing IMSA with people like Danny Sullivan and AJ Foyd and Paul Newman was racing. What was that? What were those experiences like? You know, you know, being a kid and seeing this in the racing with your dad, and also you know participating with it. Well, I remember at, at uh, Lime Rock in 1973 meeting Paul Newman, and uh, I th- I'm not sure if my father knew him previously, but they became great friends. And then, uh, and just in what I'd, I was able to, it was in 1999. I shared the 962 with him at a, a historic race at Daytona. And these were these were vintage races in name only. There was a full field of GTP cars, and <laughs> I mean they went fast. Yeah, oh, everybody was putting new tires on at every pit stop. And these and weren't parade laps. No, oh my win. gosh, a boost, you know, on highest boost you can run, and and uh, so. But uh, having Paul Newman around for the weekend was it was absolutely eye opening, and and he was such an incredible guy, and and so philanthropic. He told us about his Newman Zone and how he made his popcorn and. And uh, how he had, how he sampled all the food. He just had a great time in Westport, Connecticut, just just enjoying himself, reading books and and trying different food. So, and he was super quick. Yeah. But, and and uh, how many races did you race with him, Dad? You, a lot. you know, he raced quite a few. Um, he, he loved racing. There's mm-hmm. no question about it. And um, and he was as YG said, he was very very quick. Um, and we kind of miss him. I mean, he was a super guy. He had a camp in Connecticut for kids with cancer. And he um, did a fabulous job with them. And uh, then he had more camps. And now I think he had, there were eight camps out there. Um, he was he was fun to be with. He had a car. I don't know who has his car now. But someone is actually renovating Newman's Datsun. 
Oh, that, and that's we've we've You're done that. On oh, you yes. Oh, you have that. <laughs> Your son's got the car right <laughs> exactly. now. Exactly. I got to know who it was. And uh, no, Adam Carolla has a great stable of Newman cars, and, uh-huh. and uh, we're uh, restoring the 1984 300ZX that he drove uh-huh. in the Trans Am. But uh, when you go to Adam Carolla's uh, shop, you see uh, uh, twin turbo V8 uh, three, uh, 300Zs and. And uh, huh. all of the smaller Nissans or smaller Datsuns that Paul Newman raced, and, and then he's even doing a Newman docu- documentary. So a lot going on there. I'd like to go back just for some of the race fans who yeah. who know about racing now, because racing now is high, high technology, and uh, there's so much going on. When we raced, the only button on the steering wheel was the radio, mm-hmm. um, uh, possibly uh, maybe there was another an enrichment uh, knob on the dash, but... The cars were very mechanical, and I think that's why so many current drivers now like to do historic racing because they can heel and toe, they can actually shift the transmission. And uh, but when you go back to Le Mans, and the first year I was there, and they raced in 1977 and finished 21st, and uh, all American team, and it was absolutely amazing. But the the pit area was absolutely crammed, as my father said, with reporters outside. I mean, the the pits are nothing like they are now. It was. Way back when you saw, if you see the movie Le Mans, you can see that uh, cement blocks, bricks, uh, lots of wood, and uh, just just so um, so historic and and uh, just absolutely a throwback from when Le Mans started. Yeah, and uh, we used to do. I remember when that year the car did very well. I remember being there at another time where the car broke down, and uh, my father got really excited and said, "Let's go over and see this incredible exhibit," but he wouldn't tell us what it was. So we went uh, by the Grand Marnier crepe area right to the Ferris wheel, and all of a sudden there's the exhibit of the world's fattest lady. <laughs> and, uh, the so fat you, lady. The fat lady. And, and this, she was popular. You'd have to wait in line and pay your <laughs> francs and, and go in and, and, uh, yeah. and see her. And it was, uh, it was quite an experience. But, oh, my gosh, Lamont was just just absolute dream come true for a uh, for a guy like me to actually see and then and then ultimately be a part of, and I, I guess it, it should be said that you couldn't do this now. What what you guys did, you know, being sort of gentleman racers yeah. and just really enthusiasts, wanting to put together a grassroots team and enter a car because Le Mans and Daytona and Sebring, it, it's you know companies making engineering technology that is just so above and beyond and it's so professional. That and you guys, you guys sort of caught lightning in a bottle with those years you were out there racing. Oh, well, we were yeah. very, very lucky to be yeah. able to do that. And when I went back in 2012, my brother raced at, at Daytona in the 24 Hours, and and he was in GT3 Cup car. And I, I think we might have spoken before, but the 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 cars are so fast, and and the the motors are so reliable now. Uh, drivers are are excellent, of course, and uh, but the cars just don't break down like they used to. And now the uh, first half of the corner was really interesting back in the uh, you know 80s and so on pre ABS and and uh, sequential shifting because every driver would have to heel and toe and every uh, the cars didn't have ABS so they really would change uh, brake bias with fuel load mm-hmm. and uh, so you'd see all kinds of action in the you know somebody locking up or somebody hitting some oil or or not shifting correctly and spinning so uh, and to be able to go to all these tracks to go to Le Mans so many times and to actually see all of that and then uh as and it, crazy as it was i think i mentioned possibly last time go to the signaling pits that w- which were far away and the 
uh, right at the end of the Molson Strait, and they had the um, they had an old crank phone, and that's you'd crank the phone, and it would <laughs> it would go ding a ling a ling, and that's how it would go to the pits, and that's how the team manager would communicate with the signaling pits. Wow, it's just it, it's so amazing to hear stories like this that you know how you guys competed, <clears throat> and and strictly for nothing more than. Just the fun of driving a car at speed yeah. and being with your friends. Well, we wanted to win, too. Well, yeah. I mean, of course. Winning winning's <laughs> good. Which brings me to a good part. You guys, you've brought up your Porsche 962 uh, a few times here. And that is a behemoth of a car. I mean, that is, as far as race cars go, and especially Porsches go, you don't get much bigger and faster than that. And you guys got one new from the factory. Well, it wasn't from the factory. It was Al Holbert who was able, the factory said he could build four 962s in Pennsylvania, which he did. And the first one went to Al Holbert. second one went to a, a guy named Jack Levin, who was a waste management guy in Seattle. The third was going to A.J. Foyt, and the fourth we took. And... Um, um, uh, those cars were just like regular Porsches. I mean, they were, they're all the same Porsche parts and all of that business. Um, I, I think that really we just heard about Al Hobart doing this, and I thought, you know, now. Now is the time to, to move up another notch. And we did. Um, and the great thing about it was, thank God we were Porsche people because Porsche just builds fabulous cars. Yeah. I mean, they were just bulletproof, and um, um, and we took delivery of the car in 1985 at Watkins Glen, and um, um, Al Holbert came himself, and he got in the car, and within about two or three laps, he was doing his times that he would do in his factory car. Wow. And um, uh, which only could happen if it was a Porsche turnkey. It was absolutely perfect. Um, we had a spy Chevy when the tracks got kind of small because you needed a normally aspirated engine. Uh, there were no long straightaways anymore. And we bought the tub, I mean, the car but not without an engine. And it took us two years to get it, uh, the wires in the right place. <laughs> it was a... It, it wasn't. It was terribly built. Uh, we finally got it right. You know, we put in an 800 horsepower Chevrolet engine in it, and it went like a shot. Um, and it drove very, very well. But it took us forever to get it right. Was there ever a, a fear when you guys decided you need to step up to the next level? And when you got in that car, I mean, <clears throat> was there a worry of you might be in over your head? Well, you just go a little slower until you get on it. Yeah. Um, I mean, the routine really has always been, oh, we'll race, I don't know, 12, 13 races a year. Um, is to arrive on Thursday and for the weekend race and to go out and just putter around for a while. Because um, you rented the track with a bunch of other people and uh, there's no, we're really, we're not qualifying or anything. And, and it comes back all of a sudden. You know, it's just, it just your time's beginning to to go down, and then Friday counts for for you know for the real thing. By that time, you're very familiar with the car again, and um, you only you know it's only been a couple of weeks since you went out of it, but um, if you just kind of drive 
at your level, whatever it is, and 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 make sure that it's enough so that you don't get run over. <laughs> but it's those cars. It's not the speed; it's how they feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and a 962 is the most comfortable car in the world. Um, I mean, I. I'm not sure what you feel about it, YJ, but it just seems like it's not a hard car to drive. No, they don't know. They're very forgiving cars, and and uh, certainly, uh, you know, you can set them up any way you want. It's the last, you know, tenth or less that you can squeeze out of it. That's the hard part. But no, no, beautiful cars to drive. But I have to go back a little bit and and say um, how really I think arrived in, on my father buying that 962 yeah. and, and getting his his team going because he. He did sporadic IMSA races um, for a number of years, and, and uh, they, they were great. We drove together Daytona in 1980 and, uh, in an RSR uh, 911, and a uh, huge, huge memory for me. Unfortunately, the, uh, as the cars do, the, we lost third gear nearly, uh, I don't know, five hours into the race, and then, uh, then there was a, a, uh, one of the drivers did had a misshift, and the pulley fell off of the uh, uh, and and from the fan and and then all of a sudden we were out but uh it just it just the adrenaline and just absolutely hooked me but what i was getting to is the fact that so there so after all of that racing there was an ad in i'm pretty sure it was on track magazine that was really the race magazine (coughs) of the time and uh there was the creepy crawly march porsche and uh it was for sale and it, it had one daytona and uh, a pretty famous car. And so I, I went over to my father with this ad, and I said, and because he was talking about, I'd like to race something faster. And, and uh, so I said, and this was it. I mean, total, as a kid, this is a total flyer. I said, why don't you uh, rent this car? <laughs> and he said, yes. <laughs> and he said, you call him, and you see if you can make a deal. And so I talked to Ken Howes, who was with uh, that uh, Creepy Crawly team at the time, and, and now he's, I think he's one of Rick Hendrick's, uh, longest employees at Hendrick Motorsports, terrific guy, and uh, so they brought the car out to Riverside, and uh, father drove it in the six-hour Riverside, and that's really um, I'm, I think that that's really what yeah. persuaded you to get the 962. <clears throat> it was the first time I driven a, a you know ground ground effects, although it wasn't as much as the 962, but it was a clear GTT. I mean, it's the first time that I've driven something like that. And actually, we took it to Willow before Riverside, and Jim Adams, who drove with me, would stand on the corner at number two, and to make sure that um, you know I did it right, because this is a this is a big step, no mm-hmm. question about it. And um, you had to tuck that sucker into that corner and just hold on, um, and it, it. But you know, you. It, it, you you grow. I mean, if if you like racing and you really are doing this um, because it, you you like it and it, it makes you feel better and you get the big adrenaline, you you kind of learn how to take care of the speed. And pretty soon, that car was a pretty good car. Creepy crawly, as you know, is that thing they put in swimming pools to clean them up. Mm-hmm. And they were from South Africa, and unfortunately, they got caught in some sort of a um, political problem in South Africa. And that's why the car was available. 
um, it wasn't for sale so much. It was we had to rent it, and you guys did that, and um, um, it was interesting. Um, Porsche um, had supplied the engine, and before we got hold of the car, they took the engine away and gave us another engine. So you went perfectly well with the cheater engine. Yeah. <laughs> Those guys are tough. Unbelievable. And, and these cars now, you, you see these cars pop up at vintage races. You, you yeah. guys, you had Paul Newman in 2000. You raced yeah. a vintage race the together first one in that Daytona. car. How does it, do you think it's neat to see these cars nowadays held in such high regard and, you know, the collector market's jumping up in value and, you know, people, hold on. <laughs> Sorry you. about that. You. Get over a bit of a cold, but and people, you know, people are buying these cars not only to race them but to collect them and invest into them. Uh-huh. Do, do you find that exciting now? Or, or no, why I not? Don't. Well, I'm not a collector. Uh, I'm just, as I explained earlier, driving was my thing, um, and um, you know, I, I've kind of given the cars to my sons, and um, they can sell them or collect them or do whatever they want. I don't. I mean, I just that not does not appeal to me. Mm-hmm. And I just don't care that much um, to have something to look at. I'd rather have something to drive. And of course, and we still have the Le Mans car from '77, and um, um, you know that can go to to these vintage races. But the problem is, it's a real RSR. Yeah, and so all these guys now have fake engines in their RSRs because uh, they want to save the engine because of the value of the car. Um, I don't know what these things sell for now, but um, I haven't seen them go up in price much. Um, and um, I see the Ferraris. I mean, they sell them for thirty million and all of that business. I I, I think race cars are, are hard to sell. Yeah, I mean it's just unless they're pretty famous. I don't know what Bruce paid for Whittington's nine thirty five, but <clears throat> you know it's it, race cars just aren't that valuable. So you really just you saw them more as a tool or yeah. or something to yeah. to go out and not so much a piece of history, which a lot of people. Do think of them now as you know Maybe. as artifacts of history. Well, that's up to that's up to him. <laughs> and yeah. I think you could, as, as we uh, uh, saw at the show yesterday, uh, that uh, that was a Patrick Long show of, I mean, the race cars and 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 really the the kind of the hot rod Porsche now is coming on, where it's the clone of the '73 RS, but it has a new 964 engine or something mm-hmm. else in it, and and. Uh, it looks like the 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 market is coming around to the race cars or the or the kind of pseudo race cars. I know you can. There are many people that will uh, take an early 911, put the fender flares of an RS or an RSR on it, and and, uh, and personalize it now. So I think the uh, the the market is going from restoration uh, to more kind of hopped up hot rod Porsches specifically, and then uh, looks like the race cars should follow suit in in uh in value and uh no i th- i think the uh when you go to a vintage race when you go to laguna seca you see the monterey historics and you go to other places uh it's like going in down memory lane and if you're really into the cars it's just incredible to see them running again well you know 
we all think of ourselves as race car drivers. So, you know, that there's, that's a no brainer of why you're seeing these cars hot rotted because, uh, you know, if we're in our old Porsche or our, our you know, our new Ford Focus, we all, we all take a turn thinking, uh, we're going to cut the apex perfectly. Uh, you know, you guys have had just such, such an amazing, not career, but just life experience of, of seeing the world and being a father and son racing team and, and competing together. And, um, you know, owning these cars and driving these cars and and really experiencing them you're uh john senior you you your career was in uh money management it still is and I, still is i'm going to retire four years after i die <laughs> and <laughs> both of both of your sons though they've made their careers and, in what was your hobby how does it yeah. make you feel well, seeing your sons they're both motorheads you know did you ever think that was going to happen no i mean i just remember that um, and YJ, because he came with the early races, and they're 10 years apart. And um, I, I can remember his mother wasn't too happy about him going to these races. Um, but we agreed that if he would learn his multiplication tables, <laughs> whatever it was. So we spent about five minutes on that and uh, moved on. It was fun to be with him because he was obviously extremely interested in all of this. Um, and uh, and then his brother, the same thing. I mean, he he raced Formula Three, and his brother uh, raced uh, lights. Um, the problem is, I made sure they both went to college, mm -hmm. so they got a huge disadvantage to start with. And, uh, and we don't own half of Argentina, so um, you know. It's, they, but they, it was okay with me. I mean, I was just fine, and and um, you know, I think we all have a little different viewpoint of what you get out of racing, and so you got to ask him what he got out of racing. I know what I got out of racing, John. What what I mean, besides your you know your career and uh, you know making your name in performance parts, what what have you gotten out of racing? Oh, well, I, I would say I've certainly got the incredible adrenaline rush and the competition, uh, but I, I was always so um, infatuated by how, how the cars worked and how the suspension worked and how to set a, set a car up that would be quicker. And so, um, you know, I really jumped into the mechanical side and the engineering side uh, along with the driving. And, uh, and then to so... It kind of really to sum up what I've done is the fact that I was able to go to all these early races with my father, see him racing for the pure pleasure of racing, just the pure pleasure of driving. And I, I remember I'd go, hey, Dad, you want to go see some other cars? Do you want to go look at the <laughs> look at the engines? Look at this Mustang with this engine or Camaro or other Porsche? And he said, no, no, I don't think I will. <laughs> you know, it, it, <laughs> and, to uh, each their own. Exactly. And, and then, but he would be, get such a joy out of driving whatever car he had at the time or, or, or borrowing. And then, uh, and then to go from, uh, um, you know, attending the races and, and working on the cars, I learned so much working on his race cars and, and uh, uh, working with people. He mentioned Dennis and Randy Ossie, and, and there were so many people along the way that were um, able to just give me little hints about how to make a car better, how to prepare a car. And uh, I learned a lot. I learned how to you know, tighten bolts too tight and strip things and, and then to get to get it much, much better, to get it right. And so that was the certainly the true, uh, and it just fueled my passion for the automotive world. So uh, I'm lucky to be able to have raced at Daytona 
and Sebring with him so many times and then to race at Le Mans together. That was just a dream come true. And uh, to, to be able to start that race and just kind of think about the importance of being at Le Mans was just absolutely earth-shattering for me. And then to go on and, and uh, uh, use what I learned in racing into my business, and, and I just couldn't uh, be more thankful and be in, in such a good place. Well, you guys, you've had just a, an incredible journey together, and thank you so much for sharing it with us here on Car Stories. Yeah. We will uh, take – you've brought in some, some incredible photos, so um, we'll post these onto carstories.com where you guys can see great vintage photos from Sebring, Daytona, and Le Mans in these – uh, incredible Porsches, and then if you know, if you want to do some racing yourself, you check out uh, Hotchkiss H O T C H K I S dot net for suspension, or uh, give John Junior a call at eight seven seven four six six seven six five five. Guys, thank you so much for coming in. AJ, thank you very much. Mm-hmm.